When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Scott Johnson. Last week, the SEC declared war on crypto by formally filing charges against Coinbase and Binance. Scott's background as a finance lawyer and investor make him the ideal guest to unpack this. We go deep into the weeds on this one, talking about the SEC's complaints against Binance and Coinbase and why Scott thinks many tokens are in fact not securities. We also talk about how this might play out, the limits of the SEC's power, and why the industry will flex its political muscles in light of this existential threat. This is an important discussion at a critical time for the industry. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Johnson. So Scott, in my time at Fidelity and on Wall Street, when the SEC sent a Wells notice, it's an organization that people were deeply frightened about. Whatever the SEC complained about was enough to cause a change in the market. And typically what would happen is, there would either be a settlement or fines paid. Usually you wouldn't admit wrongdoing and they would shape the industry. It seems like the way that the SEC and Gensler has positioned against crypto is vitally different and we're getting different types of reactions. What has changed with how the SEC is handling crypto as how it might have handled traditional finance? Sure. So in traditional finance, you're completely right. The SEC, like a lot of regulatory agencies that oversee specific industry are basically frightening. If you're talking to them outside like of a normal process, it's usually not great. And you have lawyers on all the calls and it's just a terrible thing. If you have to, especially for the SEC, put anything in any of your filings about having conversations with them, they're not happy with you. It's a terrible thing to be in a position for. So I think what we see now in crypto is kind of something that I, I personally haven't seen. I've been in law for over 10 years and doing securities transactions, doing finance transactions, it's very unique to see is I think at least for the crypto industry, it's a view of the SEC is maybe not a credible regulator. While that fear, I think, still exists to a degree, the level of acceptance that you would normally see from an institution when speaking and taking the position that the SEC is right and we need to follow them because we can't be on their bad side is just not something that you're seeing now in crypto, which has evolved over the last few years. What used to be the case was 
the SEC would file a complaint with XRP. I think that was the end of 2020. And they said, listen, you're selling unregistered securities. We're taking you to court, to federal court, and we're going to put a stop to this. And at that time, I think within a day, basically every exchange delisted XRP, not because they necessarily had to or that they necessarily agreed with the SEC, but because the industry wanted to stay in the good graces of the SEC. And in their view, at least, that this was something that was lower cost and would show good faith on the part of exchanges that they wanted to work with them. And now it's really interesting because you see a flurry of activity with the SEC, most recently with this Coinbase Binance complaints, and even previously this year where the SEC is coming out and they're saying, you're doing these things. Here are the securities that you are providing exchange services for. And for the most part, and especially in the case of Coinbase, that feels, I think, righteous in terms of where they've come out on a lot of these issues, they are just not delisting these, which is just incredible in terms of looking at a step back and seeing what a normal institution in that position would do. You just would not ever see that. So it's really kind of incredible. I think it really goes to the point where the industry is viewing the SEC for not being the credible regulator that it should be more of, listen, we can't speed ground because these actions that the SEC is taking are not necessarily in good faith. And we serve ourselves to no end by conceding these points and doing what we would have done maybe even just two years ago. It also feels to me that the SEC, when it would bring a complaint, there were times I think you would see this, how close they would get to an existential threat to a business model. So if they went after a specific part of an asset class like money markets or broker dealers or leverage or something that was big, the response would be, okay, like how much legal are you going into? This really feels like an attempt in a lot of ways to end a business model that's existed. And when it becomes existential, that's a very different relationship than let's figure out how to have a path forward. I think personally for me, and I've seen other leaders in the space, particularly Jake Trevinsky has even said as one of the leaders at Blockchain Association, his view is that at least with respect to these last filings with Coinbase and Binance, it's become quite clear that this is not even just regulation by enforcement, it's banning by enforcement. The SEC has shown nothing in my view that shows that it wants this type of asset around unless it is fundamentally altered to fit within the existing structure of a typical security. And to the extent that it ever goes in that direction, there will be no purpose for it. So it's existential. I think everyone views at least Gary Gensler and this SEC as offering no solution, but a straight banning of what this underlying technology is. So let's get into the cases. So this week we had SEC versus Binance and the SEC versus Coinbase. We can take them one at a time and just dive into what is the SEC's complaint? Let's start with Binance. Yeah. So Binance is the messier of the two, which probably doesn't surprise too many people. Putting aside the additional points that they go beyond the point is ultimately the issues are they're operating an unlicensed securities exchange and broker dealer and clearinghouse. Really the threshold question that to get to the point where they are operating those things is they actually have to be exchanging securities. And so as part of that complaint, they are saying at least these tokens, and they listed maybe 12 or 13, including things like the USD, their Ethereum staking program, 
and maybe a couple others in terms of these are the securities, at least some of these, and really all they need would be to show one of those as security in order to go on into the point that this is an unlicensed securities exchange, broker dealer, clearinghouse exchange. So on top of that, they have offered an unregistered security offering in terms of their earned product, which is similar to what the SEC has claimed Coinbase is doing and what we saw with Kraken maybe six months ago or so, a couple months ago. And the distinguishing point, at least in terms of Binance, is some of these more sidetracked fraud charges, essentially, which is gets into the weeds in terms of the operations that Binance has had. We're learning maybe the international entity versus the U.S. entity weren't as separate as they should have been, which is not great from a regulatory perspective. And these are all obviously allegations. So I don't want to say anything of this is true. This is just what the SEC sought fit to put into this complaint when they filed with the federal court. So we will see how Binance responds, but it doesn't look great from the facts that they provide in terms of how they separated customer assets, where these customer assets were held, the separation between the international entity and the US entity, and really just some of the texts, while not necessarily dispositive, it's just terrible when you have your chief communications officer basically admitting to themselves that they view that they're doing in the US is operating on licensed securities. Ultimately, that shouldn't be particularly dispositive fact other than to show that they thought that they were doing this, but ultimately the law should look at what they were actually doing. But it's just terrible, terrible when you have someone at that high level saying those things. They are definitely in a tougher position. For those reasons, they're kind of viewed as more Chinese adjacent, which is not something they're not going to have as much sympathy in terms of politicians. And then they're in the DC circuit. So I saw that they had not the best draw when it came to the district judge who's going to be overseeing the case. And it was Amy Berman Jackson. At least from what I know, she's maybe not too sympathetic to defendants to federal agencies. So I was curious, how do you decide who the judge is in a federal case? The general rule is that it's just a spin of the wheel. Outside of people being recused for whatever reasons or special circumstances, it's just random. So the Binance case was three-part test, exchange, broker, dealer, and clearinghouse. And to your point, the threshold is if you're trading a security, then you need to be registered to trade securities in those three business lines. All those operations need to be separated for the most part. So in a typical traditional finance, what you'll have is securities exchange, which is essentially the machine that matches orders. And those orders are originated from broker dealers, which have the accounts with the exchanges. So as a customer like me sitting down and I want to make a trade with a security, I have a broker dealer. I don't have a relationship with their exchange directly. My broker dealer will send my order to the exchange. It'll get matched. And then ultimately that security will need to be cleared and settled at a clearinghouse. So because say a share of a company, that company needs to update its books in terms of who its shareholders are. Traditional finance has just seen the path of least resistance in terms of, okay, we'll just have a clearinghouse who will clear all the trades that happen on all these exchanges and they will determine who's the ultimate beneficial owner of those shares at the end of the day. And that's how we determine. Now, in crypto world, the blockchain does the clearing. There's no entity that needs to update their books to determine who the holders of the thing is. It's just 
you go send a transaction on the chain, it'll get propagated and then it will quote unquote settle on its own without any real human intervention outside of perhaps describing what validators do or return of Bitcoin what miners do. And broker dealers is just the way crypto works is people just have individual accounts at the exchange and broker dealers, at least in my view, are a bit of a relic from traditional finance where you couldn't necessarily do that because you know these were brick and mortar exchanges. You couldn't do this digitally. And so the broker dealers evolved out of that need and they just passed through to the digital age. So the one point you just made, which I agree with you that if you were trading on chain, then that acts as a clearinghouse. But with centralized exchanges today, because they're not securities or the exchanges take the point that they're not securities, they are doing a version of order matching where they're taking the risk on. If I buy $20 of Bitcoin, that is not going on that trade. Yeah, that's on the books at Coinbase in terms of, okay, who's allocated which of the assets that we have in our custody. Ultimately, you can withdraw and pull that. And don't get me wrong, I would not suggest that there aren't any place for regulations within these centralized exchange industries. I think one of the good analogies I heard, if you were to do it all on chain, the essential analogy would be MetaMask is the broker dealer, Uniswap is the exchange, and Ethereum is the clearinghouse. So if you were to do it that way, then that's probably a better analogy than these centralized exchanges. The centralized exchanges because you introduce this trustful model where you need to make sure that one, they're holding the assets that they claim to be holding and they're properly accounting for the trades that happen within the engine. There's a hundred percent need for some regulation somewhere in there to make sure that that trusting relationship is properly accounted for. It doesn't fit cleanly. And so when Gensler comes out and says, listen, just come and register as a national securities exchange and get yourself broker dealers that are going to deal on it and who's going to be the clearinghouse. People are like, what are you talking about? That's not really how it works. We can't do it quite like a normal securities exchange does it unless all these tokens were just literally representations of shares of a company or something. And in that case, no one's going to come to us. And that's why people don't find the SEC credible because they have the ability to be flexible and saying come in and register without offering flexibility is something that's not credible. It's a soft way of saying we're gonna try to ban you. So the Binance case has all the makings of the Coinbase case, plus a bunch of extra stuff, which is potentially fraud and how money has been moving. Maybe that makes more sense to move to the Coinbase case, which in some ways might be even easier thing to dissect. It's cleaner. And the Coinbase case is, I think, really interesting because it kind of removes some of the stigma that Binance has. And it's really just like a cleaner version of what everyone really cares about. Don't get me wrong, people care about fraud, people care about commingling funds, whatever. But those are bad acts that should be seen separate from the core issues that crypto faces every day. And so Coinbase, I think, is a better version of viewing from that lens. So Coinbase is similar, basically saying, listen, you're offering an unregistered security in terms of your earned product, which we can get into why Coinbase doesn't think that they are. They haven't stopped offering as far as I'm aware, which is also very interesting because if the SEC ever sued someone and said you're doing something illegal, that person would probably stop immediately. And it's just beyond funny slash bizarre that Coinbase is basically just continuing operations as normal. But they're offering an unregistered security, but they're also trading securities in terms of these 12 or 13 or so 
tokens that the SEC has listed, including like Solana and Atom, things like that. And as a result of that, they're operating on licensed exchange broker dealer clearinghouse without the fraud overlays. It's just kind of cleaner, I think, in that respect to get towards the real issues. I do prefer viewing the Coinbase one. I can't imagine a company operating more in good faith than Coinbase has. They've really gone above and beyond in terms of trying to engage at every level in terms of what can we do with SEC to make this work? Tell us what we need to do. We will have a robust filtering mechanism in terms of which assets we allow to be traded on the exchange. We are very confident that these are not securities that we trade on the exchange as a result of that process. And we have done everything right. And from my perspective, SEC is just taking the opposite approach in terms of we don't care what you've done. We're not going to work with you. And we're going to sue you and put you out of business. It was odd. I don't know why it was like one on one day, the next on the next day while Coinbase was testifying in front of Congress. The timing was interesting. That's one thing. And then there's details like if the threshold question is a token that's a security. I was curious why the list of securities was different across both. Yeah. So with the timing of the bills, it's hard to really say, I think, whether there was an ulterior purpose to it. I think the one thing that is on a lot of people's minds in terms of the market structure bill that was released, I think, on Friday and had a lot of interest, I know, in the community. And I think there could be an argument, there's no proof of this whatsoever, that there might have been a desire by the SEC to take the spotlight away from that bill and focus more on these enforcement actions. At speculation, I don't want to get too much into that, but it is curious that it happened one after the other at this point in time. And in terms of the choice of what assets ultimately constituted securities, I don't think anyone has a really great answer. We'll note that, yeah, you're right. They are different in terms of finance and Coinbase in terms of which assets are listed. And I know Coinbase, probably all the assets there are listed on Binance. So it was a little curious why they decided to do that and what their ultimate reason was for choosing these assets. I heard one good theory, which was some of these were assets that the SEC had investigated in the past, and maybe they just knew enough about these that it was easier to focus on them and that they were relatively high volume anyways. So it would impact the industry to the extent that they were deemed securities. But I don't think that we have a great answer to that question either. It's kind of a hodgepodge of different types. I mean, some of them I think have a stronger argument for potentially being securities and other ones uh, like Filecoin, I think that they probably did everything right in a lot of ways. And I know that they had been investigated by the SEC and ultimately I think that investigation didn't go anywhere. So they must be quite frustrated at this point that they're getting dragged back into this in a way that they can't even really defend themselves because they're not a party to this action. And I think as a matter of law, they can't intervene as well. So they're kind of stuck on the sidelines after having engaged with the SEC in good faith and they can't defend themselves. So it's curious choices. Now I'm at the point where I just consider anything I can't explain to be political, but others might have better reasons. <laughs> so let's get to the threshold thing. Cause I think that's kind of the core thing between the cases is defining what's a security. I think the chair was on CNBC or I saw a quote that they don't all have to be securities. We only need to find one. So it's basically like taking 12 shots or 13, whatever it was. One legal question I have is 
if they go to the courtroom and they start litigating this and they're going back and forth, if 11 of these are not deemed to be securities, but one is, does the other 11 in that courtroom set any sort of precedent for those existing tokens? If a court decided to go down that path and say, these 12 are 100% not securities, this one is, that would actually be not a terrible result, to be honest, <laughs> because the next day, as the Coinbase would just drop the one that they said was a security, and we would continue on, and everyone would just copy the projects that were deemed not security. So that would actually, in my view, be a pretty good outcome. I would be surprised if a court decided to do that. I think that what they would more likely do is choose the one that was a security, say, this one is a security because we only really need to find that there was one security in order to say that you were operating on licensed securities exchange. We don't need to go into the analysis on these other 12, despite the fact that they might have actually done the analysis. It just won't necessarily be part of the, is my guess. Now, I'm a finance lawyer. I'm transactional side. My wife is actually a litigator. She corrects me on some of these. So I might have that off a little bit in terms of what a court is more or less likely to do. That's just my initial thought on it. A lot of the times, if it's a threshold issue like that, where you only need to find one, they don't want to do any more than they necessarily have to do to create precedent elsewhere that they don't have to create. And so they'll just do the minimum, get to that threshold, and then they'll address the next question that they need to address. Some of the other interesting tidbits I saw in the case were that I was trying to see like what the consistencies were, because they did go token by token. And a couple of things I noticed were one, I think they all or most of them had some sort of burn mechanism or mention of burn mechanism, the notion of communications, talking about the token, and then the idea of having some level of pre-sale that happened. And so to me, it feels like, and I'm not a lawyer at all, and I'm not married to one, so I've got no legal background, <laughs> is that the way they're trying to say it's a security is that at time of issuance, they are raising money. There's a specific group that was raising money. They're trying to explain it was to do something. And then in the future, even though that event has happened, then there's a burn mechanism, which decreases supply and therefore could be interpreted as a source of value. I want to get to like the Hinman essays and this view of a security could become a non-security, but just your general take, were there any observations you made of commonalities across the tokens or the way they discussed why it's a security? There is a bit of a hodgepodge. Like I was saying, Filecoin is a little bit different in a lot of ways because they did this initial sale of this SAFT symbol agreement for future tokens. And the one rule was, I believe, was that further distributions after that sale of those tokens could not be done until after the project was completely finished. So like there was no future efforts that anyone should be relying upon, at least in their eyes, that anyone could necessarily claim when and if those tokens were traded on exchange in a secondary transaction. So that's like one end of the spectrum in my view. I think you're right 100% in terms of the other side, which is, okay, we have something like Solana, where you have pretty central group of people that are building this out over time while these secondary transactions are happening on exchanges where people could argue they're relying on those people. And there's a nominal burn mechanism for Solana. And so for them, the facts are a little bit easier. The real important part to focus on more than maybe anything else is the distinction that arises between what is a primary 
sale of these tokens and what happens on these exchanges 99.9% of the time, which is these secondary sales. So a primary sale in my view, and I think in a lot of the views of the creators of these tokens is a part of a securities transaction. And they structure these as securities transactions. When they get funding from a VC, they structure it like it is a securities transaction where these VCs can then not sell it for six or 12 months or whatever it is under Reg D or 144, which is how you would normally do a securities transaction. And in their view, and in my view too, the token involved in that securities transaction is not itself on its own a security. It is part of a broader securities transaction, much like when you hear people talk about the Howey test and orange groves. The orange groves were a part of a securities transaction, but they did not themselves on their own constitute a security. It's absurd to suggest such a thing with oranges. When you get to something much more abstract and difficult for people to comprehend with tokens, where admittedly it looks a lot more like something like share or some other instrument, but it is in fact not, I think people blur lines. But in fact, when you talk about what the actual asset is here, it is not a written instrument. It is not something that you could go to a court and say, look, and read this contract. It's clearly a security. You have, for the most part, a public key on a blockchain that is associated with a private key that entitles you to some sort of credit on that blockchain where you can transfer it or use it for some purpose on that blockchain where it has a utility. And outside of that, it doesn't offer any real legal relationship with the person who first started contributing to that network. You can't say, oh, yes, look at section 2b of this where it says i am entitled to the cash flows of this entity and i'm going to enforce that right in a court of law it's literally code that does what i just described and so when you sell the token separate and apart from the person who might have created it initially you're selling something that has no written contract involved in it there's no words anywhere there's code somewhere that tells you how the token in abstract sense works within that broader network and it has some utility within that broader network and this is what in my view a secondary transaction why it is completely distinguishable from a typical security and why that you cannot say that the token in a secondary transaction is itself a security is because it is not a written instrument like every other security in a secondary transaction that i know of and i've asked people and i've never got a great answer on if there's any other example of this and it would be a very novel argument to suggest that this asset that has separate utility, no written contract that is inherent within this thing, no legal relationship that is created inherently within this thing is itself a security when in any other case, anywhere where a security has existed. So like in the original Howie, there were contracts for the orange grove and the agreement to basically work the orange grove for the benefit of the person who was buying it. And you could then transfer that contract literally. That is not the case with tokens. And so that's really getting a lot into the weeds, but it's really a fundamental distinction that really why these secondary transactions are really important to make that clear to the court that you can't just say, if you take the abstract sense of this token, where people think of it as a thing 
and it accrues some value over time and it starts to look a lot like a share or something, even though it's fundamentally different. Not being able to communicate that, I think, is going to be where people fail. And I think people are really learning that that's the key when it comes to these exchanges and the secondary transactions that occur on them to really get that message across and where the strength in that argument really lies. So I want to double click into that argument. I think you've used this example before, which I like, but I want to see if I'm following it correctly because you're the transactional lawyer. And I guess there's ways people have learned how to structure these things, which is in the example of the Pokemon card company, if I'm just saying it back to you, is it that the card company goes to some venture capitalists and says, I want to raise some capital. We're going to do a private transaction. So we're going to tell the SEC, this is a private transaction. So we don't need to, this is the way we're going to register it under Reg D or 144A. They then raise money to make a card company and the VCs own equity in that company. And then at some future date, they start printing cards and those cards are just cards. And therefore the card isn't the token. When you say written contract, it's the original fundraising document. That's the actual security. Is that right? Yeah, that transaction is the securities transaction. What we're trying to figure out is, okay, the catch-all for security is this investment contract. A share in a company when you're buying equity is just a defined term within security. And so it's default going to be a security. You don't even have to get into the catch-all. So those equity securities that you're saying are 100% securities. Now, just because you have included, and I think you gave a really good analogy, trading cards as part of the broader transaction, you can't then say, oh, well, because these trading cards are part of a securities transaction, they now constitute securities forever and ever. They can only be traded on securities exchanges. And someone is ascribing value to these. They're relying upon the company to increase the value of them. We're going to say because of that, because the people that are buying these are buying these with the expectation that they'll appreciate in value on the efforts of the company and they're investing money in it that this is now a security forever and ever, which is, I think, a pretty good analogy for what the SEC is trying to claim here, which in that instance, it becomes abundantly clear what a ridiculous stance it is. I think people have struggled with blockchain just because it's very difficult to wrap your head around the first place. And people think that this is just a way to get around securities laws, but that is ultimately the analogy that needs to get forcefully applied in a lot of these cases. And now, is there a problem where these VCs both got equity as well as future tokens, where as part of that transaction, they weren't just getting, like in my first simple example, we finance a trading card company, we own equity in the company, then the company just happens to start making cards and the cards themselves have value and they're traded on the secondary market by people collect them. Does it get more confusing as part of the problem that original capital also takes tokens as part of their investment? Yeah, I think some of the confusion arises from the fact that a lot of the people making these initial VC investments are admittedly and in reality, in my mind, making securities transactions. And so they purposely structure it that way to protect themselves. But that is a primary market transaction with someone who's creating a technology that is giving you tokens in that technology. They will occasionally and very often also buy equity in some sort of entity as well. So it gets confused in there, but that whole transaction involves securities. It is a securities transaction, but when you take a piece out of it, 
that does not necessarily a security make that one piece. If they were to sell the equity in foundation or whatever, that because it's an equity in an actual enterprise recognized by the state and de facto an actual security as defined, then that would obviously be a security forever. But taking another piece out that is not specifically defined, which in this case is a token, does in my view not make that specific thing a security. There's a law from, I think, DX Law that did a really good analysis on this and really looked at all of the precedents and cases after how we talking about investment contracts and all the different ways that courts kind of viewed it. And there's really no precedent for suggesting that a token that really is not really a written instrument, it's an asset on its own. It doesn't entitle you to really any legal relationship unless a court were to infer one, but on its own, there's no writing. It's not statutory relationship. Like a share is a statutory relationship that you have with the company. If you have a contract with the company for debt, can be a security, but that's a written contract that you have. Token, there's no writing, there's no legal relationship, unless a court would suggest that it's inferred, which it would be something that we just don't see in history in terms of interpreting this law. And I think at that point gets confused. So I guess along those lines, if I invert the argument, then has anyone ever tried to claim to the SEC that a baseball card or some other collectible that another company, something, a secondary asset created by a company is a security. Not on its own, not that asset. A trading card or someone was giving me the example of luxury goods yesterday on Twitter, like a Rolex, you're buying it. As far as I know, Rolex specifically will tell you that they think that it will appreciate over time. It's a watch. If you sold that watch to someone on the street, that person would not have an expectation that they could go to Rolex and they would have a legal relationship with Rolex where they're entitled to some cash flows. That watch might appreciate, it might prove value because Rolex maintains its brand. It spends millions of dollars every year maintaining that brand. And they want to make sure that the products that they sell actually are desirable and increase in value over time. But there's no legal relationship that that person who buys that watch has with the company that is an instrument that could be construed as an investment contract with the company. That would be ridiculous in a lot of people's minds. And that's essentially what the SEC tries to argue when it comes to these secondary transactions that occur on these exchanges. So to just finish off this point, in your definition, do you think any token is a security? You can 100% make a token into a security. I think you'd have to explicitly do that. You can create a company with organizational documents and bylaws that refer specifically to a token and say, this token, the holder of it has specific rights within this company that we will abide by. And you could then, as a holder of that token, say, I have these rights look at the organizational documents. I am entitled to them and I'll go to a court of law and show their organizational documents, show that I am the holder of the token and the court will say, yes, you are. You have these rights. This is a security as a result of the rights that are conferred by these organizational documents. But absent that legal relationship, you don't have that. I mean, listen, the court can come to whatever conclusion they want. They can say, listen, yeah, this is different. There's no real writing that we're used to. But in our minds, you're entitled to the right to transfer these assets on this. And we're going to infer that that's a sufficient legal relationship. 
And in that way, maybe the court comes to the conclusion that these are securities. I think that would be a vast departure from the way that securities laws have worked historically. Is that where the staking or the earn programs start to be a problem where now you're saying if you have these tokens, you have some sort of right somehow that we're going to distribute cash flows to you? It depends on what you mean by the staking earning program. In the example of Coinbase, where they act as an intermediary, a centralized intermediary, the argument that the SEC will make is essentially, listen, you're taking money from people and you are investing it on their behalf, essentially, and you're going to earn money for them and then you're going to pass that along to them. And that's sufficient to be a security. Coinbase, in their mind, they're saying, listen, they're not investing in us. We are purely a service provider. They are investing in Ethereum staking, and we are just directing their assets to a staking node where they can earn money. We take like 2% fee on whatever they're earning, but all of the earnings are from Ethereum and get passed directly to the customer. And all we do is just one custody of their assets and take a percentage fee off of whatever they earn. We don't do anything to vary that. And the problem that occurred with Kraken and why they ultimately settled is because they didn't do it necessarily as cleanly. So they were taking money. They were saying, we'll give you 3% and we'll stake and we'll give you money. But in reality, the staking rate that you earn varies over time. And so ultimately Kraken was taking some risk and they were passing along some of it. So if the rate that they were earning from the staking nodes was higher, they would keep more. If it was lower, they would keep less, but they had like a different relationship with the customers than what they were earning from. And so that is not great facts because it looks like, okay, someone's investing with you, you're promising them 3% flat, it's unvaried, and then you're gonna go on the back end and earn money doing X, Y, Z, but it's untethered from that back end staking activity. I like Coinbase's chances a lot more and obviously they feel similarly because at some point you can provide a service like when you give money to a financial advisor to invest on your behalf and they say, okay, I'm going to put in treasuries and you're going to get 4%. They're not offering you a security. They're just investing your money on your behalf and they're passing along everything and they take a fee out of whatever assets you're holding with them that they're directing. And so that's kind of a good analogy, I think. Okay, so I think we've done it on the security type. Where do we sit right now? Because in the prior SEC crypto cases, they've basically gone after dead or zombie companies or very small ones that have been in trouble. Now they're going against two of the largest crypto companies with balance sheets, put them in an existential threat position. So my instinct is now it's big law firm versus big law firm. Walk me through the next month or years of what happens in the courts or how this plays out. I hesitate to get too into weeds just because... My wife tells me all the stuff she does, but I don't do litigation myself. But everything I've seen talked to, I expect this to go years. I mean, XRP has been going for two and a half years and it could go longer. This is probably another two to three year type trial for Coinbase and Binance absent some sort of settlement. It is interesting in the fact that when you get to this level, when you have these entities with very deep pockets and is existential risk to their business model. They're basically going to pay whatever it takes to win. You will see what is essentially the absolute best lawyers in the country tackling these issues, which is in my mind, what you want to see. Now, the SEC gets to set the terms of the field. Essentially, they get to file the complaint. They choose who they're going to pick and they choose the cause of action that they're going to put in the complaint and who the parties are. So 
it's always starts off a little unfair, but it is in district court. In theory, they could have tried to put it in one of their administrative tribunals. I think that they've been getting crushed in a lot of ways whenever they've tried to do that. So I think in their view, the cleanest way was to just, we're going to go to district court, we'll do this. It'll be interesting because in my view, the SEC has good lawyers, but when you're talking about the upper echelons, it's just the people that I interacted when I was a lawyer, I mean, they're just some of the smartest people in the world and they work a hundred hours a week without sleep. And this will be their Super Bowl. Without a doubt. I mean, listen, you live your whole life and you do deals and whatever. But at the end of the day, when you have a very impactful litigation about basically an entire asset class and where that asset class sits within this country for the foreseeable future, that's the Super Bowl. So when you have the best working around the clock in their Super Bowl, that is something I'm pretty optimistic about against what might otherwise be good lawyers at the SEC that might not feel particularly strongly about the positions that they're taking and they expect to go home at a reasonable hour. That makes me optimistic, but ultimately this is a facts and law type situation. And so you got to hope that brings you over the line, but we'll see. We first met, it was about you summarizing some of the SEC's recent cases in front of the Supreme Court. And it felt like those weren't going well for the SEC. What's been happening, and this will kind of drift into your favorite topic of politics, because I think there's a theme that the regulators are given certain rights. And then over time, like any system, the regulators start to expand those rights without new laws. And then the courts kind of decide, is this too far? So I know in the past, we've talked about the Chevron case, maybe go into a little bit more of the recent history as the SEC and the current courts. Yeah. So the SEC is, I think, facing significant pressure from a lot of angles. And some of it does, I think, impact the future of crypto. So maybe take a step back. Two of the biggest points of leverage that any agency has, the SEC being one of these agencies, is in certain circumstances, they can bring cases under what are essentially internal courts, these administrative tribunals. And in those cases, it's basically the agency is prosecutor, judge, jury, whatever. And I think statistics have borne out that they win a lot more of those cases than they do when they have to go to what is an Article Three court. An Article Three court is just a federal district court or a court of appeals that is what everyone thinks of when they think of a court. It's a judge who's been nominated by a president, confirmed by the Senate, who's a little bit more responsive to the people versus what are essentially unelected bureaucrats in these internal courts at these agencies. And so they've been getting a lot of pushback on those in the courts and getting into the weeds a little bit. So the SEC actually hasn't been bringing many cases at all the last couple of years in these internal courts because they just, one, they've been running them terribly. I mean, even just last week, there was an admission by the SEC that essentially the internal prosecutors at the SEC had access to what are essentially files of the internal judge at the SEC, which would never be allowed in a typical proceeding in a federal court because of what are these fairness arguments. I mean, you're basically like, it's not colluding, but you have access to information that none of the other parties do. So you have an unfair advantage. As far as I know, all the remaining proceedings in these internal courts were dismissed by the SEC because of this deficiency that they found. And they said it was, we just had a control deficiency and it'll be fixed or whatever. But I think it really goes towards the point that these are really unfair courts in a lot of ways. So there's that. 
it's interesting. A lot of these cases ultimately come out of the Fifth Circuit. But there was the case, I think, that I was mentioning at the time, which is Supreme Court, which was Cochran and Axon, which was basically like, if you were in these courts, and one of the ways that the SEC bleeds you is it puts you in these courts, and it can take many, many years to wind your way through these internal courts. And then after you resolve any sort of further appeals within these internal courts, you can then go to federal court and say, hey, this wasn't fair. And I talked to like a real impartial judge and get this fixed you spending in a massive amount of money to get to that point. And what Cochran said was, no, if you have an issue with the underlying nature of the court's constitutional question on what is happening in this court, you don't have to go through a 10-year process at the SEC to finally get in front of a federal judge and make this argument. You come right to us. That weakens them. And there was another Fifth Circuit case, which was basically, it went even deeper. It basically said, one, the delegation of authority that Congress gave these courts is unconstitutional because they didn't do it in a certain way. So basically it said these courts are illegal. <laughs> On top of that also said to the extent that these courts aren't illegal in under certain fraud actions, these defendants are entitled to a jury. And oh, by the way, all these judges that are basically protected from being fired, they have certain protections. They are unconstitutional as well because the president needs to be able to fire these people because they're operating like judges. It was a pretty devastating case. I think that was maybe a year ago or so, or maybe less. That's Fifth Circuit, so it was limited to like Texas and Louisiana or whatever. But they filed to for writ for the Supreme Court, so potentially that gets settled. I think it would be more favorable for the SEC if the Supreme Court ruled. I think it would probably still be bad in the end, but it was so extreme. But it was interesting to kind of see that People view the SEC and you lose a view on how credible they are when they end up in federal court and they lose certain cases like this. And it displays to everyone the unfairness of the process. And back to your point on Chevron, that is probably the second type of strong leverage that an agency like the SEC has. And so Chevron is the penultimate administrative state ruling that really gave them a ton of authority, which was basically saying, listen, Congress gives the agency authority through statute and it sets the guidelines in terms of what the agency can do. Now, Congress, as we all know, can write things that are not particularly clear. Sometimes the things that they say in these statutes are ambiguous. And so how do we resolve what this, the words mean in the statute when it comes to what the agency wants to do? And Chevron was basically like, well, Absent it being like arbitrary and capricious, we will defer to the agency's interpretation, which gives wide latitude for the agency to kind of determine whatever they want. And this Supreme Court is certainly not as amenable to that. There's a Supreme Court case coming up, I think next year or maybe this fall, I think everyone views as revisiting Chevron. So there's a good chance that Chevron is significantly pared back soon. And I think at least with respect to crypto, while that I don't think necessarily addresses the security question, because I don't think that's necessarily a question of ambiguity as much. I think it does go to the heart of things like the SEC defining exchanges in a way that can pick up DeFi, which is something I think that they'd like to do based on certain rulemaking that they've done recently. So to the extent that they say whatever, we're going to define these words very broadly to include like a really disparate 
group of people slash entities that we don't know who they are, what they are, and necessarily their relationship with each other. And we're going to call them just an exchange and all these DeFi exchanges have to register with us, which would ultimately just say that they're illegal because they're none of these can obviously register. So it'll be interesting. And it kind of goes to just show that the SEC is not like an omnipotent agency that can do what it pleases, where it pleases. There are limitations on its authority. And I think crypto is probably the most interesting place to be when it comes to seeing where those limitations really are when an industry really wants to push back because they're facing an existential threat. Yeah, I think from the courts, it gets back to Congress and laws. I don't recall an SEC chairman or chairwoman making videos on Twitter with cartoons and being so advertising about it. Maybe CDSCC's purpose is that they're protecting retail, so they're trying to meet the retail investor where they are. But between Elizabeth Warren's crypto army, the full press on CNBC, Bloomberg, there's just a lot of rhetoric going back and forth and making this what seems like a very political thing. What's your take on how the congressional response to rulemaking and or the impact on election cycle? It's been quite interesting to one see like political responses but also as you mentioned i think when you see gary post these ridiculous videos on twitter and you really make outlandish statements and kind of contradictory too you kind of realize that this is morphing a lot more into a political battle i mean there's obviously regulatory legal element to it but I think a lot of people recognize that whoever wins the politics at the end of the day is going to be the most successful because the SEC is probably not going to move much from their positions now. And so what it really comes down to is, can we get legislation within the next couple of years that makes it very clear that this industry will remain in the US and here's the framework and the SEC can't do anything about it. And so I think a lot of the narrative building that you see now from one SEC and certain politicians on both sides of the aisle is coming to that realization and framing the industry in a certain way such that you get people that aren't as keyed into it to come to a certain conclusion. It's interesting because with Elizabeth Moore, I mean, she's just ridiculous in a lot of ways because in my view, as an observer of politics, there are things that people care about the change of votes. And there's a lot of people that use crypto. A lot of those people don't care when it comes to voting where politicians stands on crypto because it's just not like a integral part of them and their decision making. But there are certainly a lot of people that do view that. The position of the politician that they might be voting for can really be swayed by where they stand on crypto and it being on the pro side. On the anti side, there might be people that hate crypto, but like they're not, in my mind, absent maybe a very few examples, going into a ballot booth and saying, I don't care about abortion. I don't care about gun rights. I don't care about anything else. I'm going to vote for this person because they hate crypto. It's just bizarre to me that anyone would come to a conclusion like that. I think that's evident in the fact that you don't really see any politician coming out that strongly absent like an Elizabeth Warren, who is very safe in her seat in Massachusetts, that has no worry about alienating some marginal amount of voters because of crypto. But it is really bizarre that anyone would ever think that. But I think part of the narrative building that you see from administrative agencies, the heads like Gensler, Yellen, 
and even to an extent Biden in some ways is trying to frame crypto as like a lawless, bad actory type industry that needs to be brushed, if not curtailed significantly. And if they can kind of frame that, then I think that the idea would be, okay, we can get enough of these marginal candidates when it comes to swing districts to at least not be supportive of crypto explicitly. And I think that's a tough sell. I could see a world where the marginal group of really strong crypto proponents have an outsized impact in races like that, where it becomes very clear that being anti-crypto is not a winning position for any party. And unfortunately, Democrats, at least nominally, a lot of their leaders have taken a position of anti-crypto, notwithstanding the fact that there are certainly exceptions and they don't necessarily represent the entire party, but at least in a fuzzy sort of way, Republicans in general are just more pro-crypto in a very general sense than Democrats. And so if there is a, at least in these swing districts, if there is anything that can get you 500,000, 5,000 votes, which is not out of the realm of possibilities, that's a very key demographic that even Democrats will be like, fuck it, I don't care about being anti-crypto. I just want these votes and this doesn't seem like a bad thing anyways. So it'll be interesting. I think we'll see a lot. I think now that we've seen the industry head down this existential road that entities like Coinbase that were generally trying to be very neutral because they didn't know who the next administration was going to be. They wanted to stay in good grace. They didn't want to seem like they were taking sides. I could see them very well being, listen, absent you coming out pro crypto, we're going to push heavily against you. And so it'll be interesting, I think, in terms of the dynamics next year. And I also think a lot of these actions, these enforcement actions start to slow down coming into the end of this year and next year as a result of not wanting to create an environment where the politics could impact the policy. I find it just in some ways befuddling when you look back at it to think that the industry that would seem most concerned or threatened by crypto would be large financial services banks. And to see the Democrats line up with an anti-crypto message to protect banks is... Yeah, it's bizarre. With Elizabeth Warren, I mean, listen, like nominally, she's supposed to be a champion of the people, especially when it comes to financial services. It's bizarre to me that she's essentially saying, listen, we need to destroy this Persian industry and basically support big banks in a way. And they love her because of it. It's hard to square outside of the fact that she has spent her life or at least a large portion of her Senate career focused on financial regulation. And a lot of what crypto does is kind of obviated in a bit it kind of makes it a little redundant. And I could see her saying, well, my way is the better way. I won't accept that this free market solution exists and it must be inferior. And so I must get rid of it. That's the only way I can kind of square, which is really bad to say that that's even a thought in her mind, but I can't think of any other way. (laughs) Sometimes I think that the industry and all the stuff we see nowadays with the engagement model that when you would see people that were lightning rods for the left or the right, do something on Twitter, for example. You'd see their supporters come out. You'd see their detractors come out. But I think a strategy people learned was if you attack a group and that group is loud, your enemies almost broadcast your message by attacking them, by being so fervent. And so I do agree with you. It's interesting. I don't see anti-crypto protests. 
people already come after crypto. There's definitely people that are going to vote for it. It makes no sense to me that Biden would spend an iota of his time going after crypto tax cheats or whatever you said the other day. It's a bizarre thing outside of trying to build a narrative where people get a little bit more fired up about being anti this industry. It's interesting. So I did a little analysis on it. There's 435 districts in the US, I think. And it's basically split up population-wise. So like each district is supposed to have approximately the same population of people in it. If you look at how many people use crypto, there's maybe 40 million people in the US use crypto. Most of those people don't give a shit, no matter what, where the politicians stand. If you even said maybe two, three, four percent of those 40 million people, if those people voted for a politician that was pro-crypto, which is a small percentage, I think that's pretty reasonable. That would be a sufficient amount of votes to flip five districts, which was the delta between Republicans and Democrats in the last midterms, which is what is deciding control of the House, which is a big deal because absent Republicans having control of the House, then you have basically a trifecta Democrats and they can push their agenda through a lot easier. So if someone can make the argument that Democrats can push through the rest of their agenda if they're not anti-crypto, that's a strong message to send in my mind. Whether that is actually borne out in reality, I guess is a separate question. But in my mind, I think it's a reasonable argument to make on why it's absent people that really hate the industry because they think it's an existential threat to the dollar or whatever. And I think that's probably what a lot of agency heads maybe calm down on, or at least a risk to dollar status. Then it seems like a costless type thing for the marginal candidate in a swing district to just say, I'm not going to risk it. No one's voting for me because I'm anti-crypto, but they will vote against me if I am. So why am I doing this? I think it'll be interesting to see whether that actually plays out a bit next year. So this has been a lot of fun, Scott. Usually we end the podcast with asking people what they're excited to build over the next six months and over the next six years. But from your interesting take, I guess, what legal resolution or regulatory resolution are you excited to see over the next six months and then over the long term, next six years? I think the XRP case is probably coming down soon. This is the summary judgment motion. That'll be interesting to see what happens there and how that impacts the rest of these cases. It could go either way. It is a little bit more specific to XRP. So the ramifications might not be very broad, but they could be depending on what the judge decides to do. I'm super excited for next year. I'd like to see this industry really flex its political muscles in a way that makes it very clear that there are real costs to running an administration that is anti this industry to such an extent. Listen, I'm not against regulation completely. I think it needs to be smart and tailored to the specifics of the technology. But I mean, the way that this is being run now is obviously just a ram job. So I think incumbent upon the industry to really put forth a strong showing next year to show that there are real costs. And I think that will have more impact than really any other thing that this industry could do going forward in a legal sense, at least. Excellent. Scott, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. Glad to be here. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 